Welcome to our podcast, Learning is Disruptable. Together, we will explore the intersection of disruptive innovation and education. When we say disruptable, we're not talking about the disruptive student who's causing chaos in the classroom. We're talking about the need, potential, and path for pursuing change. Disruptive innovation is a business theory referring to when a new product or service competes with something offered by a larger, more established business and eventually replaces it. The typical education system is so vast that it's almost impossible to change without starting something much smaller. Homeschools, microschools, and co-ops provide many opportunities to approach learning differently because each student can have customized learning experiences. The world has and is changing drastically, yet our public education system has not. We hope to add to the conversation regarding a need for change, a need for disruption in the world of education. It's time to disrupt what you thought you knew about learning. Welcome back to the show. We're really excited about this week's guest for several reasons, one of which is that we're talking about an innovative approach to education that's not homeschool. We love homeschool and we know homeschool, so we talk a lot about it in this podcast as an innovative option for learning and education, but we also want to add other options to our conversations. Today, we're interviewing Katie Broadbent, the Chief Empowerment Advocate at Prenda Learning. Katie is one of the primary creators of Prenda's learning model and philosophy. Prenda's goal is to empower learners by making it easy for amazing adults to start and run micro schools in their communities. Prenda has helped over a thousand people start microschools over the last five years. Prior to Prenda, Katie was a speech language pathologist in public schools and in medical settings, focusing primarily on literacy and cognitive linguistic stroke rehabilitation therapy. Over the last decade, she's been focused on understanding the underlying factors that affect student motivation, engagement, and well-being, and developing evidence-based learning systems such as Prenda. She's the author and creator of Treasure Hunt Reading, a free kindergarten through third grade literacy curriculum aligned with the science of reading research. She's mother to four amazing kids and loves to read out loud and bake. Welcome, Katie, to the Learning is Disruptable podcast. We're so excited to have you and thanks for being willing to share your time with us. We just would first of all like you to share a little bit about yourself and what motivates you to be involved in innovative approaches to learning. Yeah, so my name is Katie Bradbent. I am the Chief Empowerment Advocate at Prenda Micro Schools. So Prenda is a company that helps you start and run an amazing micro school. And my job is to help everyone outside of Prenda understand the learning science and psychology and neuroscience behind being an empowered learner, what that really means and looks like. And so it's pretty much a dream job. And I I've been involved in education. I used to be a speech language pathologist. And then I think you asked what makes me involved in innovation. When I was a speech language pathologist in schools before I had kids, I felt like my whole job was bribing kids to do stuff that they didn't want to do, but that was good for them, right? And then I jumped out of the education world and jumped into the health world doing cognitive linguistic stroke therapy, working with the brain and people that have had strokes and rehabilitating their language function. And this is a population of people that is just driven to get better. They want homework. They want to do just anything. And so then I started having my own children and looking at those two kind of like ends of the spectrum thought, how can we get this kind of motivation into our schools? Because what I see systematically happening to kids is they, they, you drop them off at school excited to learn. And then over the years, they, they become less and less interested in learning. So I really wanted to understand that and the, the psychology behind motivation. And so I did a lot of research into that. And then in 2018, I got connected to Kelly Smith, the founder of Prenda. And he had just finished his first like pilot semester of Prenda with six kids around his own kitchen table. And I drove over to his house. We for some reason, just happened to live. I didn't know him, but we happened to live pretty close. So I drove over to his house, sat at his kitchen table for like three hours and grilled him about his intentions and education and what he believed and made sure he was a good person um, and left there knowing that micro schools were really going to change the landscape in education. Because I could see that from all the different perspectives from I was homeschooling my kids. Then at that point, I have four kids, four to almost 11 so I'd seen that from a homeschool mom's perspective that this is hard and I wish that my kids had more, like I had to work really hard to get them out into 
some larger social settings or to share the responsibility of educating them with other trusted entities and tools. Um, I'd seen that from the classroom teacher's perspective of having way too many kids to be able to serve. And then I could feel that from the child's perspective of being lost in a, in a big sea. And I just could see how microschooling was coming together to serve everyone's needs really well. So it's kind of me in a nutshell. That's awesome. So you, you've kind of given us a, a basic about microschools and Prenda, but maybe define a little bit better for our audience, what is a micro school? And I also want to know what does a day at a Prenda micro school look like? I imagine it can be anything from traditional school, just smaller, all the way to a Laura Ingalls Wilder one-room schoolhouse. Like, how would you describe it and how is it an innovative approach? Sure. So the definition of micro school, there isn't one, really. You can say you're doing a micro school and mean a whole host of things. So it's, it's a very um, ambiguous term. To Prenda, we mean a group of five to ten learners participating in learning that is more or less self-directed, guided by a learning guide or adult that kind of scaffolds that experience for you. But you can run any sort of educational philosophy or approach to learning inside of a micro school. And micro just means small, right? So depends on what you mean by small, I guess, right? We, we even help families homeschool with the Prenda learning model. And we even call that a micro school when it's just one, one family. If you invite a few other kids in, that's a multifamily micro school to us. You know, The term, I don't think we need to get super attached to. I think what happens from a learning standpoint and what happens in the minds and hearts of those kids is really the differentiating factor. You asked about the one-room schoolhouse. And I think that that is such an interesting kind of overlay onto what we're doing because when I, it depends on your perception of the one-room schoolhouse, right? So if you read Little House on the Prairie or anything about one-room schoolhouses, they're age mixed, they're small, there's one adult, but as far as the environment that's being created there, it's very, if you don't do, if you don't spell this word right, I'm going to hit you. It's very intense, right? So yes, small, yes, one adult to a, a, a small number of kids, almost polar opposites of what that feels like, right? And also, um, one-room schoolhouses are not personalized in any sort of way. You are in your grade level and you are tracked towards a very specific curriculum. There's no like, what do you want to learn about, Timmy? Like, there's none of that, right? So in our micro schools and in many micro schools across the national landscape now, there's a lot more learner autonomy that's happening where we we are still in Prenda micro schools. All of our curriculum and the things that we provide, they're still standards aligned, but we're just not forcing anyone to take a certain path through that curriculum, right? So to the to the student, they are perceiving a very high level of autonomy in that in that situation. They're also perceiving a lot of care and personalization and community and an adult that is trained to understand their developmentally appropriate behaviors and how to respond to those in connective loving ways instead of shame or consequences or punishments and trying to kind of force or motivate the right or desired behavior all the time. And instead say, what is your goal? How can I help you fall in love with that goal? And how can I connect you to resources and experiences that will help you develop the skills, mindsets, and abilities that will help you execute that goal? And that's going to be different for every child. And that's possible in a micro school because you only have 10 kids. And Further, what we've done with the, the role of a guide versus the role of a teacher is taking teachers way, wear way too many hats. It's virtually an impossible job. There's really high burnout, really high turnover in the teaching world. Not to say that it can't be done. There are people that do it magnificently well, and I have a deep, profound respect for them because as a speech-language pathologist, I would walk into these big classrooms and pull my one or two kids for my little speech therapy sessions and just stand in awe of this woman or man in there that just could operate in that environment. But it, it isn't built for the student success and it's not really built for the teacher's success. It's built for the system. And when we are trying to serve a system instead of families with unique and individual children that have needs, we're not going to win. The children in that environment are not going to win. I love it. You are talking to so many points that we we align with in what you're saying. It's, it's amazing. So we really love innovation. We've had several of our podcast episodes that talk about different kinds of innovation, and all of them are good in our view. 
We have two different co-ops that we participate in with our kids. The larger co-op has about 50 kids, but the, how, many, how many families is that? About 13 families. So each of those moms is coming in to participate, and they probably are running to maybe borrow a little bit of language. They're running several micro schools at the same time uh, with the different age groups. A concern that we have about the approach is that it might not be accessible to everybody. If there's a single parent or dual working parents, this co-op model really might not work for everybody. Is is micro school something that can help with accessibility for somebody that wants a different educational approach but can't do it themselves for whatever reason? Yes, absolutely. The vast majority of our kids come from households where both parents work. It does require a little bit of flexibility, though, with um, working schedules because we... So you can run a parental micro school based on any type of schedule that the guide chooses to set up and that the family approves and signs up for, right? So it's built, though, for a shortened school day because we don't have, we just feel passionately that parents and families need more time together. And so we've tried to build a learning model that facilitates that. So if you are someone who needs full day childcare, and that's part of the reason that you send your kids to school there are going to be some adjustments to the, your lifestyle that will need to be made in order to, to participate in a micro school, or you'll need to find a micro school that provides that. So there's multiple pathways there, but it's definitely like my kids are going into their fifth year at micro schools. And I used to homeschool. I used to provide all of their education when they were little. And now they just go to school. I work all day. They come home. We have our time together. So it's a good middle ground, but it's not a perfect substitute for all-day neighborhood school childcare. Makes sense. While we're talking about accessibility, we also don't provide a lot of the same wraparound services that a neighborhood school would provide. Like you're not going to find free breakfast or lunch or a lot of those like before care, after care options. And that's because we're doing this on just a fraction of the cost of the traditional model. And that kind of ties into another question I had, which is, I don't know how much it costs for a family to go and participate in one of these micro schools, but are there ways for them to get funding or support if it's something that they maybe can't afford just out of their pocket? Yes. So Prenda does really well in schools that favor school choice because there is funding for families to choose and micro schools qualify. Obviously, Arizona signed universal school choice last year in October, Florida, West Virginia, Utah. There are lots of, of states signing on. So if your state, if you live in a state where those laws are being passed, there's definitely funding options. And we're working diligently to make sure that Prenda is a qualified provider under all of those laws. Um, if you are not in a state, we, you can pay for Prenda directly And Prenda has a set fee that you pay per child, and then the guide will decide what their tuition will be. And that is a complete sliding scale that that guide sets. We have recommendations and things like that, but um, that will depend on how many hours they're providing, what their experience level is, all sorts of things. So I can't just give you a number, but um, we have tried really hard to make this accessible for everyone, even if you are paying out of pocket, which very few people do, I think. Over the last five years, this is a guess, don't quote me on this, but maybe 1%, 2% of people have paid for this out of pocket. We've been, for the last five years, actually partnered with charter schools. Um, So your kids are actually enrolled in a state school to participate in Prenda, but we've also always supported ESA or whatever your state calls scholarship program. It's not as expensive as like a full-blown private school. Well, and I would maybe put a plug in for our listeners, that if they're in a state where that legislation hasn't been passed, do your homework about it and let your representatives know that that's something that's important to you. Because we've just learned about that in recent history, and that's something that really intrigues me. Yeah. And if your listeners want a resource on that, and I can give you the link, EdChoice does this amazing school choice map where you can click on your state and it'll show you what has been legislated and give you all of the updates on what's going on in your state and how to get involved and advocating for that too. That'd be wonderful. We'll put that in the show notes. Awesome. 
So one of the things, as I've read a lot of the good books on disruptive innovation that they talk about is it's not just a cool technology, but it includes different kinds of supporting organizations. And you kind of mentioned the wraparounds a moment ago, but for traditional schools, these supporting organizations might be the PTA, it might be teachers or administrators or school boards, people that write textbooks, technology suppliers, like there's a lot to it, even including testing infrastructure. What kinds of supporting organizations or things like that do you think might be helpful to expand people's access to these innovative learning models like homeschool co-ops and microschools? That's a great question. So something that our families kind of miss is community sports, you know, things like that. So more community driven sports would be, and like music, it's really hard. Some, some states do a great job saying, Hey, homeschool kids, you can actually come sign up. You can pay to participate in your school's orchestra or, you know, these add-ons. But I think that if we saw more innovation in that space, providing low cost, affordable access to things like that, that would be a huge help for the micro school and co-op movement. That's not a bad example of it. I have friends that are cousins actually who did homeschool and they still participated on their high school football team locally. And so a lot of people have some nostalgia for that high school sports or band or orchestra. And that might be something they really don't want to give up in order to pursue a different learning model. Right. And another thing that we've played with is actually hosting a Prenda micro school inside of a brick and mortar public school. And we've been running this experiment for four years now. It's doing amazingly well. And the districts are actually just expanding the program into more schools. So they've taken like a, an old teacher's lounge, like a half size classroom. And we've they provided a paraprofessional that the school pays and we've trained them as a guide and we provide the full Prenda model. And there's an age mixed group of kids that they're all participating in personalized learning and this culture of acceptance and an invitation to dare greatly. So that's one of our core values to, to challenge themselves at an appropriate level. And the principal just raves about this program and those kids go to library and they go to lunch and they go to recess and they, you know, they have all of those wrap wraparounds. So in order to facilitate more access to this type of learning, I would love to see that um, trend increase. In the same way, in the last 10 years or so, you've seen this same trend in charter schools, including like a Montessori classroom, right? So you want to send your kids to a Montessori classroom or a Montessori school and lucky you, your neighborhood school or charter, a nearby charter school offers like a Montessori track. You know, you could do a personalized learning track inside of a public school. And I think that would be a really beautiful balance. What might prevent public school from expanding that sort of program within their schools? It, it feels like that's a really good option that, that should be pursued more than I hear about. Yeah, something we kind of joke about in Prenda is that if if there's one thing that puts Prenda out of business, it would be that would make everyone really happy in Prenda is that if public schools just adopted all of these learning strategies and we didn't have to go outside the system to invent anything new because that is like we've just transferred the innovation inside the system. The system has been proven to be innovation intolerant, we will say, but that doesn't stop us from trying. And I think what it takes is an innovative principle and district leadership that was willing to try something new. Again, Prenda's not like a self-directed learning center or an unschooling aid. It is definitely in the middle of like, there are standards, there are goals, We there's a curriculum. Um, you're just participating that in that in those standards in a much more flexible way. And what we've seen in the data is that it's working for a lot of kids. And so one of the, you, you asked about what drives innovation. And I think one of the main blockers to innovation is risk, right? If you have a, a disease or if your child is diagnosed with something and the doctors say, okay, you can either, you have three options. You can either do the normal option and it works for about 50% of kids, but your kids are going to be super disengaged, lose their curiosity. You're going to um, battle them tooth and nail to get them to do it. Like, you know, that's one, but it, it's going to work for 50% of the people. And here's mountains of data and centuries of experience behind this, like mediocre, but, but reliable source. 
Or you can say, or here's this totally new innovative solution where we have three or four years of data on this and not a lot of experience. And, um, you know, it, it sounds risky to the parent or, or, or the middle track is like, or you can homeschool, which is where you're doing an at-home treatment. It's very time consuming and your children may or may not lose their curiosity and love for learning. There's like a higher percentage chance that they will love learning or, you know, you can kind of equate those like the diagnosis and treatment path to like, well, I need to learn and, you know, what, how are we going to get this job done essentially? But parents don't like that, right? They want something that is tried and true, does not require a lot of effort on their part. Um, which is hard to say out loud um, because obviously parents love their kids unconditionally. And we say like, I would do anything for you, but would I like quit my job and homeschool you all day? Like, I don't know, like that's a big sacrifice and it's not the best choice for a lot of families. So we need more options to serve all types of families and families with different values and families with different um, needs. And I think microschooling is just a really innovative middle ground there where you can have a lot of unique individualized needs met as well as a balance in effort for the parent. Michael Horn is one of the one of the guys that uh, does a lot of writing and thinking about innovation in homeschool. And I've listened to a few of his books on the audio app. Yeah, he wrote with uh, Clay Christensen. Yeah. So he's got Disrupting Class, which is one. Um, there's one that I just finished listening to called From Reopen to Reinvent. It, it was also good. But one of the things that he talks about a ton is the risk of the existing system, which you already alluded to just now, where everyone goes in the same sequence at the same pace. And that idea of learning is, it's just bonkers. Because Jerry Lynn and I, for example, are both relatively competent learners, but we learn stuff at totally different speeds. And if we were in a classroom setting, if she had it down and I didn't, we were moving on no matter what. And that's like, that's, that's a huge risk that. But it's been normalized. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we're, it's a risk that we're familiar with. So it doesn't feel risky anymore because that's the risk everyone takes. And, and we have such a high degree of trust in that system that it's easy to mentally write it off and not, not categorize that as a risk. Right. A lot of parents, especially post COVID, they're just, they're shocked when they find out that their child is behind because the system has not surfaced that it's years too late sometimes. And but we have a lot of people coming to Prenda thinking like, I was, I thought everything was fine. And I, I, I couldn't perceive that I was, that that was a risky situation. I just, it was so normal. I didn't feel that. And what we see at Prenda is when we interview our kids, only 30 or 40% of these kids coming from traditional education are saying that they're, that the classroom instruction was sufficient for them. Another third are bored and another third are lost. But no one asks kids that because kids don't have a voice in our society. And so it's passed over. It's not a data point. It's not even a blip on anybody's screen how the kids feel or if, it, if it's you know adequate for them. Um, we just legislate that all nine-year-olds have to receive this exposure. And then we track that exposure to see if we're winning. You know, we look at test scores and things like that, but I can show you a pile of kids who maybe don't have good standardized test scores, but definitely are proficient in skills on, on all other measures. So, Well, in a, a test, if I had a fight in the family last night or ate something that didn't sit in well for me, but, oh, it's test day, you can't miss school that day. Well, that test isn't really going to be predictive of my particular skill. It's just how I did on that day. And testing may be decent for assessing a school, but it's not very good for assessing an individual, I think. That being said, real quick on testing, I think that there's a difference between standardized testing and using data to decide an appropriate curriculum or goal for a child. I think that for too long, we've hidden data from kids. Kids love data. Give them a video game where you tell them like how many hearts there are and like how they're doing their points and stuff like that. They love data. Imagine playing a video game where all of that was hidden from you. And then we're like, why aren't you motivated to do this? It's like, well, like I, you've hidden all the data. Like I want to know, I want to, I want to be able to play this game. And so at Prenda, we use a lot of data and we do adaptive diagnostic testing. We're not saying, Hey, you're behind and that's a big problem. We try to stop using the word behind. It's like, here's where you're at and here's where you might want to go. What do you think? You know, how far do you want to get? And we kind of try to paint the picture for kids. 
of what's possible. You know, we have coaching conversations with them at the beginning of every year and we look at their data and we say like, if you did this X amount of your curriculum every day, you could get here. Or if you did this a little bit more, you could do this, you know, and we try to paint that motivating picture for them. And then every day in our software, they see where they're at in that goal. And every time they do work, they see their little progress mountains, what we call it, like increase every day. And they can see their work in context of a goal that was set by them with a stated purpose. That's another thing that we do at Prendis. Every every time you set a goal, you also have to set a purpose. So then you see that every day. So that's your goal in a context that's important to you. And you're getting immediate feedback on how you're doing on that goal. And if you can give that to a child, we don't have a lot of motivation problems at Prenda, actually. In fact, the average goal set by a child at Prenda is 1.8 years of progress. Oh, wow. So when you paint that path forward for them, and that's one of the biggest criticisms that I hear of like giving kids choice is like, well, if you just, if you don't force them to do it, do something there, they won't do anything. It's like, Mm, nope. Actually, what we see in the data, this is not an opinion, is that when you say, hey, kids, what do you want to learn about? What do you want to become? What's important to you? What problems do you see that you want to fix? Here are some pathways to accomplish that. They are super driven. And it's actually all of the things that we do to them to motivate them. Like, I will give you a prize if you do this. It cheapens it to them and they can feel that. And we don't give kids enough credit internally, psychologically, we think that kids just need to be bribed with cookies and stickers and prizes and treats when that actually cheapens the learning. And that's where we see a fall off in motivation. Like, for example, I could take, I could make you a plate of cookies and I could invite you into my house and say, here, have some cookies. And you'd be like, oh my gosh, these are so good. That was great. When can I come back? And then tomorrow you'd come back and I'd have a plate of cookies, but now I'm going to pay you to pay the cookies. And your immediate reaction is obviously like, what's wrong with the cookies? Why would you need to pay, pay, you know, and that's what we've done with learning. The human brain and heart loves learning. Very curious. Like ask any parent with a four-year-old if their problem is that their four-year-old does not ask enough questions. Like guaranteed, that's not happening, right? Kids are curious. Humans are curious. Learning is naturally enjoyable if you don't ruin it. And so that's what we've done in education is essentially we've, we've in an effort to incentivize it, we've actually it's backfired, right? And so now we have to use all of these methods in the classroom to like control for behavior and get kids focused and all, it just, it just snowballs. And if we, if we start on the right footing with the right assumptions about what learning is and what a human is and what a human loves, we can get really high quality learning with very little fight. That's so good. Yeah, really good. We had talked to you before recording, and you had mentioned that you're familiar with the jobs to be done theory, which we've had a prior episode um, where we discussed that at length. And we talked about the functional, social, and emotional components of making progress in those struggling moments in our lives. But for some people, public schools work well and nail their jobs to be done. Totally. In your experience, why don't people turn to homeschool or micro schools as an innovative option to to meet their jobs to be done. I think we need to get clear on the job to be done, right? As a parent, is your job to get your child into an Ivy League school or is your job to be done, raise a human who knows who they are, can accomplish something great in this world and live a life full of meaning and purpose, right? Those are very different jobs. And so you kind of have to, when you choose an educational path, you're hiring an entity to help you essentially accomplish that job to be done. And what we see in the traditional education model is that you essentially turn like 99% over the of those jobs to be done, turn those over to the neighborhood school and hope for the best because, you know, that's what most people do, right? And you can see that, oh, this person went to this school and schools will post their percentage of students that get into Ivy League schools. That's like a metric. Um, So it really depends on what you want as a parent. And I think what people are starting to realize and why we see this shift towards innovation is that they see that what they signed up for isn't actually what they want. So more and more people are realizing that they want kids who can think for themselves, who are mentally and emotionally healthy, who like themselves and who like their family and who can get along in society. And that's not exactly the type of person that the traditional model is turning out. We have a national mental health crisis. One in four of our kids has anxiety, depression, the suicide rate is going in the wrong direction, right? 
So when you are signing up for the, the traditional path, those railroad tracks, there's data that is now accessible to parents that shows like a caution, you know, like we need to be careful about this. And that's because the, the world has really changed over the last 10, 20, 30 years. Like the school that, like I went to public school, that school doesn't exist anymore. It exists in my mind. And I think that it exists in my neighborhood, but it doesn't actually exist in my neighborhood anymore. That's a, that's a false assumption. And it's really hard. There's not a lot of transparency in the system. So it's really hard for parents to see that. But when, when everyone went through COVID, suddenly there was this huge wave of clarity about what was happening. And so I think a lot of parents have now seen like, oh, I thought I was on one set of train tracks and I'm actually going to jump to this other set of train tracks. And Prenda is a part of the wide array of very pluralistic and different things that you could hire to get you to where you actually want to go. And my hope is that once we have enough data, which we have a lot of data that shows that our kids are really happy to go to school, our tagline at Prenda, what keeps us going is that every child deserves to love school. If you're going to force someone to do something from the time they're five to 18, we should all be working pretty hard to make sure that that's effective, one, which the data shows that the other way is not, and two, enjoyable. (laughs) And not like rainbows and milkshakes enjoyable, but enjoyable in a way that actually speaks to what the human heart and mind are really wanting, right? Humans, humans want to progress. Humans want to accomplish. Humans are driven to do things that are important to them. And so we really need to just take a step back and ask ourselves, what is the job that we want to accomplish here? And what is the the best path to getting that job accomplished? And I think what we're seeing right now is a lot of recalibrating on what we want. That's so good. Maybe we can shift gears a little bit. Do you want to? Yeah. Preparing for this, I binged Yell's podcast, which there's a lot of good stuff in there. I've uh, really enjoyed Yell's content. One of the episodes gave me this question. How is it that micro schools can be a better fit for neurodivergent kids who really, really don't benefit from the current education model? Yeah. So a few different ways. And it depends on the type of neurodivergence, but essentially in order, like the the traditional model is one way, right? And it has to be one way because it's for, for many, right? It was not built for the individual. And so when you are neurodivergent or differently learning and you're put into something that was made for someone who is neurotypical, um, there's obviously going to be some mismatches there. And in order to close those gaps, to make that setting work for you, you have to jump through a lot of hoops, right? Like you have to sign a lot of paperwork. There have to be evaluations. You have to wait in a months, months, months long evaluation line. And you have to qualify for all certain things. You have to fail in very specific ways. Like it's very complicated to get the help you need to just have a classroom accommodation of I can stand up sometimes right? Or I can go for a walk or I need another person in here. Like the accommodations that you're, that you're earning are just so minimal sometimes and they're so hard to get. So in a micro school, there's 10 kids and a conversation between the guide and the parent to say, Hey, here's my kid's situation. The parent is the expert in the child and we trust that. And here's what, here's how they best succeed. Could they stand up occasionally? Could we have these different expectations for them? Could their goals be this? Could they use this curriculum? Those are all just now conversations. And the guide and Prenda's responsibility is to say yes to as many of those things that are reasonable and possible in that setting. And there are things that go outside that scope. Like if the child needs a one-on-one aid to be with them all day, the guide could say yes to that, but the guide's probably not going to provide that, right? The parent would provide that and the guide would accommodate that within the micro school as long as it wasn't distracting or disruptive to the other learners there, right? So it's a conversation and not a long line of paperwork, essentially. And what we find is that a lot of the accommodations that people fight for are just not necessary in a micro school because it's already that what you're fighting for is the right to personalization. And the right to personalization is something that we recognize for every single learner at Prenda. Everyone is neuro divergent essentially at Prenda. Everyone has a unique path. Everyone's going to be treated as a unique individual. And that's really what these kids need sometimes. 
and we can provide that for them and for everyone. That being said, there are things that you can get from the traditional system that you probably couldn't get in, a, in your standard front of micro school, right? Those teachers have specific training. You're going to have a school psychologist on campus. Like the micro school is not going to have those assets. So it's kind of, there's definitely pros and cons to it. And the parent should evaluate their options and hire the thing that is best suited to do those jobs to meet the needs of their child. Tony mentioned we, we've been loving your podcast, which is called Kindled. Yeah, the Kindled podcast. Mm -hmm. And we'll share that in the show notes. But one of the episodes I really loved was episode 10, and it's titled The World We Create for Our Kids. And we think everybody should listen to it. But in that episode, you talk a lot about the world that has been created in the traditional school model. And we've been talking a lot about that today. But my question is, are many of the challenges that are accelerating like mental and emotional health problems caused by certain ways we've structured education? Social media gets beat up as a possible cause for these problems, but is it just a magnifier of what is already happening within our schools? Yeah, I definitely think that the main driver in the social emotional health of our children is not social media. I think that the root causes are different and then it social media exacerbates them. So we all have three basic psychological needs. This is standard self-determination theory if you want to look this up. So I use different words for them, so it's hard for me to switch back to those words. But relatedness is the is the formal term for it. I call it community or connectedness. We all need to feel accepted and loved in our community. And our brains are biologically predisposed. The child's brain is biologically predisposed to depend on another individual, a relationship to have their needs met. And so anytime they feel like their relationships, especially with primary caregivers like teachers or parents, is threatened, they're actually sent into a stress response, a neurological stress response, their fight or flight or freeze mode. And they end up living there so much of the time that it actually starts to change how their brain is developing. It changes the architecture of their brain and, and the neurochemistry of their brain. And that leads to mental health issues. Because if you don't feel like you can be that you're safe and that you can rest in the relationship, which you depend on for your survival, um, that's a big problem for your brain, right? That's the same thing as like if you were thousands of years ago, whatever, in the, in the plains and saw a lion or something like you would have this big the big neurological stress response to that. So you could run away, you could deal with that. It's the same stress response that's triggered when you go home with a bad grade and your parent is super disappointed in you. Because now there's this tension in your relationship that you depend on for survival and that you you feel like you're in the doghouse. That's a lion to the child. And so we need a generation of parents and teachers who are like, hey, we need to work on this. Also, our relationship is way stronger than your bad grades. And I know how to show up in this relationship to where that's really strongly communicated to you. So you don't have a neurological stress response to this situation. We've, we've de-risked that to you. So now when you go home, the parent can say something like, oh, bummer, I'm with you. Like, I already know you wanted to do well and you weren't able to. What can we do together to help you do well? Um, so that's one of our psychological needs. The next one is competence, which in parental language, we call this prioritizing personalization. So if I'm a nine-year-old and I have to sit in a classroom and there's a certain level of instruction happening and I can't meet that, I can't access that, I sit all day long with a feeling of incompetence, which is, again, very stressful to my system. And it, it makes me want to quit. I have no drive. It's like, oh, I, I, this is a game I can't win. I already am just going to give up, right? So that's another um, psychological weight on our kids today is that they feel like they can't win because we're not personalizing their, their education and the last one is autonomy um, or allowing a child to feel ownership and like their decisions matter, that they're able to develop an internal locus of control where they feel like I am an agent who can act in this world. And if something's like my decisions matter, my voice matters. And right now what they hear is get in line, be here at this time, learn this in this way. And they don't have a lot of autonomy. So we're systematically oppressing all three of these psychological needs and so it should not be a surprise to anyone that we have poor mental health in the youth population because that's the world we've created for them. Oh, that's, I'm glad we asked that question because that was so good. So good. In the book, uh, in one of Clay Christensen's book called 
uh, competing against luck. He says this, and I, I think it kind of pegs several of the problems that we've been talking about. It's easy to focus on efficiency instead of effectiveness. And he adds that creating the right metrics are hard. So efficiency, like getting all the kids through the thing, like that that's an efficient model, but we've kind of discussed there's a lot of ways that it's really not effective for people. And in a lot of ways, parenting in general is difficult because we might not know for 20 or 30 years if we did a good job. Like, how did our kids turn out? So whether it's in parenting or in helping our kids be engaged learners, what do you think are some of the good ways to measure success? Like, how can we have a more predictive thing that will help us? Make sure we're on the right track. Yeah. Yeah. We want to know we're on the right track as parents. Yeah, I love that. That's a really good question. And amen to parenting and raising up a child being a long harvest activity, right? So in the same way that we would plant wheat and harvest it, you know, you don't know what's going to happen, but there are, it's like, well, no sprouts come up. That's a good indicator. You're not going to have a great crop, right? If everything turns brown, that's a good indicator. So there are definitely indicators in this long harvest. And I think as far as metrics go, we have in society chosen to a comparative model where it's like, how do you compare? What percentile are you in? Are you on your grade level or off of it, et cetera? instead of just saying, where are you and how far can we get you? So like switching to a growth mentality in all of our metrics, where were you? What did we do? Was that an effective means of moving you forward? And then to what purpose did we move you in that direction, right? Or did you move yourself in that direction? So I think that's really important. And then also, um, I think happiness gets really underrated. <laughs> like if your kids love going to school, like that's a good indicator that they're mentally happy. And as soon as they're not wanting to go to school, it's like, well, okay, what's the root cause of that? Is there a relationship that's not feeling good at school? Are you not feeling safe at school? Are you feeling like we, we, we just go through those psychological needs? Like, do you feel too controlled at school? Do you not feel like you have a relationship that's, that are healthy there? Um, are you not feeling like you can win? And then we just use that as kind of a differential diagnosis to ask how can we change this for you so that you can then feel like there's hope in front of you. And yeah, so I, I would say we, we survey all of our kids weekly about four things. Are you feeling like you're in control? Are you feeling like the at, there's an adequate level of differentiation, which is we ask it in different terms to kids, but um, are you feeling, feeling like you, you can accomplish your goals? Um, are you happy? What's your relationship with learning like? right? And then are you choosing to learn because you love it? That, that This intrinsic motivation. Are you choosing to learn because you don't want to get in trouble because you want someone to think you're smart or because you want to get good grades? Those That, that is a symptom of a non-healthy relationship with learning that if left will only fester into poor mental health and poor performance as well. I want to know, kind of moving on to your guides, how would someone make a full-time job out of starting a micro school? And could a mom who's already homeschooling her kids start a micro school? What other kinds of people are choosing to be Prenda guides? Yes. So if you want guiding to be a full-time job, essentially we run Prenda micro schools and this is all very flexible, right? So your situation might look different than this, but I'm just going to kind of tell you the status quo essentially. So if you're going to run a K through two micro school, that is about 16 hours a week for a, prendum, a standard Prenda micro school. Can you do more? Can you do less? Do we see people doing that? Absolutely. But you could run a morning session and an afternoon session of that essentially, and then have a full-time job. You could do the same thing with third through eighth grade. Your day would be a little bit longer because it's a five-hour day instead of a four-hour day. So, and you could, you could choose to adjust like, well, I run, you, you know, you just mess with your schedule until you are working a what was reasonable for you. And to answer your homeschooling question, absolutely. This is something that we see a tremendous appetite for is moms who are already homeschooling, they've already dedicated their entire, like all of their hours essentially to creating an awesome learning experience for kids with no compensation. So a micro school opens that door to a few more kids where I'm already investing this. Prenda makes it easy to do that. So it's not like the same amount of effort as you would like I can imagine myself as a homeschool mom being like, this is impossible almost to do with three kids. How, how would I do this with seven kids, right? The Prenda model makes it easier for you to 
to leverage your, your time and your effort differently to make that much more feasible than it would be just to like extend your normal effort of homeschooling. Right. Um, and then it's also a great fit because then these kids, instead of going to find a co-op and like co-ops are awesome. I used to do lots of big co-ops, but they're tentative, right? Like, like is co-op happening? Is it not happening? Like there's not a lot of stability sometimes and some there are, but they're, they seem to be pretty transient depending on who wants to participate. So this is something that you control and it's, shows up at your house every day, these other kids that you get to invite in um, and with families who are from your same community, right? We Like in my neighborhood, there's three micro schools in my neighborhood and the kids just ride their scooters around and we have one that's a little further away. So we've set up a little like drop-off pickup station. It's like that house is literally like a bus stop. And we, you know, like we've, we've solved those problems as moms together in, in a community and then we have park days and play dates and all of those kinds of things. It's like a really beautiful way to kind of cement the community that you want to raise your family in. So I think it's a really good fit for homeschool moms. The other two, I would say teachers who are wanting more flexibility in their teaching arrangement. They got into teaching because they wanted to empower learners and the system is making it so hard for them to do that. There's so much paperwork. There's so much busy work. There's so much, so many hats to wear. You have to work 12 hour days to get it all done. So this allows you to go back to empowering learners in a supported, flexible way where that teacher has a lot more autonomy and personalization and community to go back to our psychological needs that don't stop in childhood. We all still have them too. So people coming from teaching is a huge one and they make excellent guides as long as they can let go of them having all of the right answers sometimes. Sometimes we see this from teachers. It's like, oh, I'm used to like controlling the classroom in a certain way. And it's like the Prenda model kind of invites you into this space where it's like, oh, we're going to give the kids a little bit more control. And sometimes that's hard. But then once the teachers lean into that, they love it. So that's kind of fun to watch. And then the third one, just a parent who really their child is, they're not getting the results that they want for their child. And they want to just create this experience for their own child. They've never homeschooled before. They've never, they come out of nursing. They come out of the business world. Like we see the whole, a, a whole different array of people that, that do this. Um, and because of what Prenda provides, the training, the day in, day out curriculum, like learning platform and the, all of the resources that we give you that make it essentially like, I won't say prepless, but way less prep than you would think makes it really accessible for pretty much anyone, any caring adult who wants to, to run a Microsoft who really can. And I, the one caveat, like the one skill you really need to bring to this too, I'll say a little bit of tech savviness and a lot of humility, because you're going to be learning a ton of things that are going to maybe fly in the face of everything that you thought that you knew. And um, just an openness to look at the world from a different, a different lens and to try, uh, try different strategies with kids than maybe you're used to. I want to comment on what you said about the homeschool mom who maybe is homeschooling her own three kids and is like, how could I do this with seven? Mm-hmm. I want to remind them most often, I, I feel like a lot of my friends agree when you add more kids in, even just for a play date, life gets easier. Totally. <laughs> I don't know what the magic is behind it, but I can get so much more done if I invite four kids over and have a total of nine kids at my house than if I'm trying to do it and just my kids are, you know, on my heels, mom, 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 mom. And I think you should get paid really well to do that. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah. So I, I just think, yeah, that makes sense that, that that would be, that would be a good solution for these moms. Yep. One thing I wanted to touch on, cause I can just imagine somebody yelling at their podcast player hey, don't forget to ask this question. College still matters to a lot of people. Not a, not everybody agrees that, that a college education is the right answer for their kids. And that, I think, is a reflection of maybe some positive assessing, but college does still matter to folks. They do want their kids to be college ready. So what might you say to a parent who does think uh, college admission, whether or not it's Ivy League or not, is kind of irrelevant, but college admission still matters what would you say about people that do homeschool and micro school co-ops? I think that there is kind of a false perception that when you do something alternative, you're giving up on any sort of academic excellence, which is a complete falsehood, right? We have kids working two, three grade levels ahead, right? They're, they're here because they were bored out of their mind and they needed something more challenging, right? Our kids are absolutely going to be college ready. They're going to show up. I, I will say they're going to be life ready, meaning that they know 
what they want out of life and that they have the skills and resources to discern what path is best for them. And if that's college, awesome. If that's an Ivy League college, awesome. If that's trade school, awesome. If that's getting right into work, awesome. Like they're going to know that because they're going to be super driven by their purpose and the problem, the problems in the world that they've fallen in love with, right? So people should not be hearing this thinking like, oh, I just need to like give up on academic excellence or wanting my kids to read or write. Like that's not happening over here. And kids are definitely growing. We just found a really some some good data that really supports this. And I'll give you um, a blog post that we did that's a write up of the the academic and empowerment kind of data. So for your listeners, but just two quick points in the public schools, there was a report done last year, I think maybe the year before, that said that about fifty percent of kids are behind behind grade level at the beginning of the year. And then they, at the end of the year, this number was 36%. So they were able to close that gap by 14% for four, for 14% of kids. Prenda's same number there is 20%. So we are even better at closing that gap than the traditional model. And then kids who come to us a year behind their first year of Prenda, 66% of them grow two or more years of, of academic progress. So there's no slouching over here at Brenda about academic excellence and goals. We want our kids to be have super strong skills. We provide all of the tools, resources, and experiences that they're going to need to actually get those skills and then apply those skills in meaningful ways, all while being pretty happy. So that's a pretty good package. Um, there are definitely pros and cons, and it's not for every family, but it's working for thousands of kids. And if you feel like Brenda Microschools is a good fit or a different type of micro school, like I would just encourage your listeners to find out more and to get the details that they need in order to feel confident. The details are out there. The data is out there. You just have to find it. Awesome. Well, thank you, Katie, for your time again and just the wealth of knowledge you've shared with our audience. Where can we send our audience to find you and Prenda? Thanks for the time. I've loved this conversation. If you want to know more about Prenda, you can go to Prenda.com. If you click on Kindled, that is where you'll find a big resource hub of our podcast blogs, where we talk about all of these ideas and in a way that you can apply them to your homeschool, to your co-op, to your traditional classroom, to your soccer team, anywhere that you interact with young people, these principles can help you. Um, And then if you want to become a Prenda guy, there's a little button on Prenda.com that says start my micro school. And that is your access point to create an account and to start your training and to reach out to our team and to get the details that you need. Any final thoughts? All kids deserve to love school. I agree. Thank you so much, Katie. Yep, that was fun. Thanks for listening to the Learning is Disruptable podcast. Share this episode with a friend, subscribe to the show, and leave us a five-star review. See you soon.